Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Patrick Ishmael is joined by Michael Cannon. Michael is the Director of Health Policy Studies at Cato Institute. They discuss the obstacles preventing real reform in the American healthcare system, the idea of Medicare Advantage for All, and state-level solutions for improving healthcare access. Find more Show Me Institute podcasts on SoundCloud at SoundCloud slash Show Me Institute and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Here's Patrick Ishmael and Michael Cannon. To kind of kick the conversation off, can you talk a little bit about your philosophy on healthcare reform and, and what you've learned and if your mind has changed at all about uh, how you think reform should look uh, in light of what's happened with the coronavirus pandemic? Sure. So thanks for having me, uh, Patrick. It's always great to uh, be with the folks that show me. Uh, you folks have done some great work on healthcare reform. I'm thinking in particular of the law that you championed in Missouri, which allowed clinicians from other states to come into the state and give away free healthcare to the poor. Believe it or not, that used to be against the law in Missouri, and uh, your work changed that. I think that's huge. And, and we've seen the wisdom of that approach in the response to the coronavirus in many states. What a lot of states did was uh, as soon as they, you know, the, the, the first wave appeared, and even before that, the first wave appeared here in the United States, a lot of governors by executive action said, look, we're going to suspend all sorts of restrictions, regulations we impose on clinicians, in particular, in particular clinicians from other states. So this New York and New Jersey, for example, said that if you're licensed by another state, even though under normal circumstances, we would not let you practice in our state until you got a New York or a New Jersey license, we're in such dire straits here, we're gonna let you come in and practice with a, with a Vermont or a California or Missouri license. They did that because they knew that these regulations block access to care for vulnerable people. They, 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 they validated what you knew and what you fought for when you got that law passed, which was uh, uh, the recognition that these are regulations that are supposed to improve the quality of care, but what they end up doing is reducing the quality of care because they block access for people. So kudos to you and the Show Me Institute for, for, for the incredibly important work that you've done. I think you should you know, take a victory lap for that success uh, now that it's been, now that the wisdom of your approach has been validated by so many gover governors from both political parties. Um, and, uh, and you asked about sort of my approach to healthcare reform, and I think that that embodies it. It is that healthcare reform is about making better healthcare available to an ever-increasing number of people all the time, always improving the quality, always improving the reach so that, so that access gets better, and, and we're helping more people and reducing the amount of unmet medical need. Uh, I don't think there's any way to totally reduce it to zero until we've somehow figured out, somehow figure out the key to immortality. Um, but you know, we humans are, are made of crooked timber and we can, uh, we can make improvements, but perfection really isn't an option. Uh, what matters is what kind of health system is gonna keep making those improvements so that we are always bringing, within, bringing healthcare within reach of more and more people. I think the approach that you follow is one way of doing that. And that's what animates my approach to healthcare reform as well. I wanna remove the obstacles to innovations that, that reduce the cost of care uh, because there are all sorts of those obstacles all over the healthcare landscape. I wanna remove obstacles to innovations that improve the quality of care. A lot of people don't like 
confronting, the, even talking about this reality, a lot of people like to say the United States has the best healthcare sector in the world. Uh, there's some reason why they say that. Uh, uh, there's some ways that we do, but the quality of care is alarmingly poor in so many ways here in the United States. And there are, there are a lot of regulations, government rules that are preventing entrepreneurs from improving the quality of care so that fewer people die of medical errors, so that there are uh, fewer uh, 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 non-fatal medical errors, so that we get more coordinated care, so that we can email our doctors and check our labs and stuff online uh, there are all sorts of obstacles to uh, us being able to realize this in healthcare, the sorts of innovations that we, and conveniences uh, and quality improvements we take for granted in all other sectors of the economy. And, uh, and too often healthcare becomes this fight between, oh, you want people to have healthcare and you don't. I, with, anyone who makes that allegation, and I think doesn't even understand what the health reform debate is about. Because if I want to reduce the amount of government subsidies that are available to people, if I want to reduce the amount of government regulations that uh, dictate how we use healthcare resources, it's not because I don't want to have people want people to have healthcare. It's because I want them to have healthcare, and those things are, are preventing uh, innovators from uh, making healthcare more widely available and improving its quality. It, and like you, we talk a lot about supply side reforms that include scope of practice or CON uh, elimination, expansion of insurance, removal of mandates, uh, telemedicine, like you just referenced. And like you talked about, license reform is actually a, a big topic, not one that was a huge topic, uh, at least until especially recently with the coronavirus pandemic, where you're seeing uh, a recognition by a lot of governors that having uh, licensing barriers imposed by the state can actually hurt people. And, and you've written a paper uh, with Shirley Storney uh, that talks a little bit about one of the ways that we could reform our licensure system. Can you talk a little bit about what that paper suggests and how that would operate in practice? So uh, a, a lot of people look favorably on government licensing of clinicians, doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, uh, registered nurses and, and on down the line, because the purpose, the stated purpose of these regulations is to improve the quality of care. You don't want quack doctors out there uh, writing people prescriptions for snake oil. Uh, and, and you want some standards to make sure that the healers out there know what they're talking about or they're providing quality care. I want that too. Licensing is not the way to do that. Now, uh, in fact, licensing doesn't improve the quality of care. It reduces the quality of care. Now, a lot of people have difficulty with that concept. They say, how could that be? The government's setting standards and, and if you don't meet these standards, you don't get to be a doctor. How could that reduce the quality of care? Well, one of the first things that licensing did when it took effect, when state, states were implementing it about 100 years ago, uh, is when the uh, uh, clinician licensing craze swept state legislatures, one of the first things that these licensing laws did was uh, they barred from the medical profession all uh, uh, African-Americans, women, and, and Jews, uh, all, uh, all sorts of minorities. The way this happened was they weren't facially uh, racist or sexist or anti-Semitic, these laws, but they raised the barriers to entry into the, into the, the market for physician services so high that there are a limited number of medical school slots and the majority, when there's a shortage like that, the, the majority looked out for its own, and medical schools closed their doors to women, closed their doors to minorities, uh, and reversed the progress that uh, 
the competitive system of medical education and certification had been making in integrating that profession. So you have, if you want to know, uh, there are lots of ways that licensing hurts the quality of care. That's the first, that I think, most obvious. Uh, a law that ends up blocking access to the, uh, the, the, the medical profession for women, for African-Americans, for Jews and other uh, minorities is not about quality. Or even if it does have some quality enhancing features, barring those people uh, from the profession uh, is not going to increase the quality of care, it's going to reduce the quality of care. But then it goes on, you know, the, as we mentioned before, raising these barriers to entry also increases the prices for medical services. And so fewer people can afford medical care once you have clinician licensing. But physicians have also used licensing to block uh, competition from innovators who would have improved the quality of care dramatically, uh, who, who uh, would have been offering every American conveniences like uh, coordinated care, uh, electronic uh, health records, the ability to email your doctor, uh, the ability to have one-stop shopping uh, my sister-in-law right now uh, is enrolled in one of the, uh, my brother and sister-in-law are enrolled in one of the few plans in, uh, or really the only uh, health plan in the United States that survived the, the organized medicines, the physicians, the physician lobby's efforts to use licensing to block competition from what we call an integrated and prepaid health system. The only health, such health system that survived that, that, that purge uh, is uh, Kaiser Permanente. Uh, my sister-in-law tells me a story about going to the doctor and uh, within two hours, seeing not just her primary care physician, but her primary care physician, two other specialists and getting her prescriptions on the way out the door. Have you ever had that experience, Patrick? I have not. I have never been enrolled in a, in a health insurance plan or, or uh, uh, had a doctor who made healthcare that convenient for me. And, uh, and the reason is because of the barriers at licensing and some other government interventions have put in the way. So uh, what we talk about in that paper, my uh, Cato Institute colleague, Shirley Sforni and I, uh, Shirley is a professor emeritus at uh, uh, California State University, Northridge uh, of economics. We talk about our preferences to get rid of licensing entirely. It doesn't add anything to quality uh, assurance in the healthcare market. But if states are not willing to do that, what we yet what we propose is uh, a, a system whereby states don't license clinicians directly, but rather recognize organizations that will license clinicians that will say, okay, here are the categories of clinicians that you can have, so that you can they can cr create a dental therapist category, which most states have been blocking, and which would make uh, basic dental care affordable to uh, to lots of uh, low-income people who currently can't afford to see a dentist. Uh, these, these third-party organizations would have their own education and training standards. Uh, they, uh, they would also certify and keep monitoring the quality of care that these clinicians provide, and that would be a, a, a much more flexible way of, of training the clinician workforce so that you're providing everyone the training that they need in order to provide medical services, but you're not requiring people to take additional courses that they are uh, uh, that are not relevant to their practice, which just ends up increasing their education costs and increasing the prices that they charge. Uh, nor are you would you be limiting their scopes of practice so that uh, the way licensing does right now, so that you're barring clinicians from providing services that they're perfectly competent to perform. About half of the states 
allow nurse practitioners to practice independently, but the other half require them to practice under the supervision of a physician, which can cost them $15,000 or so per year. And that ends up increasing the cost of care for you and me and for low-income people who are struggling to afford medical care. The system we propose uh, of third-party uh, certification would uh, not impose those uh, costly scope of practice restrictions that increase the cost of care for low-income people. It would make healthcare more affordable and improve the quality of care at the same time. Well, and, and I think to piggyback on what you just said about nurse practitioners, I think that that's a great example, especially during the coronavirus pandemic of governors and legislatures making a different decision about, despite what's on the books, to increase access to people who really need it, especially in rural areas, states that impose these sorts of work, uh, working, uh, working with a doctor requirements, a lot of those states said, well, for now, that's not going to be necessary. We're going to make sure that uh, we can get care out to people, expand these scopes of practice, uh, and, and help people out. So I think that that's a great kind of takeaway. And, and it supports this idea that one of the big responses to the pandemic was to try to increase supply. And, and when you do try to put limits on supply, when you're increasing prices and, and lowering access, that doesn't help patients. Now, one thing that, so that's just the supply side. There are, of course, demand side changes, uh, requirements for coverage or expansions of Medicaid or expansions of programs that is kind of like a counter proposal to those supply side reform ideas. And we had uh, Stuart Butler on uh, f uh, last week to talk a little bit about his idea of Medicare Advantage for All. And, and I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that. Obviously, Medicare Advantage for All is a little bit different than Medicare for All. Um, but what are your thoughts on a, a reform proposal from the right kind of making uh, government still, nonetheless, uh, a central component of how even more people would get their, their health care coverage? Well, I think it does bear uh, repeating that all of those examples, there's so many examples of states relaxing the regulations that they impose on clinicians. Um, we, we talked about uh, telemedicine allowing out-of-state licensed clinicians to provide telemedical services within the state. You mentioned loosening scope of practice restrictions, uh, allowing uh, nurse practitioners to prescribe. Um, on down the line, there's just all, all these things that states have been doing to relax those what you call supply side regulations that block access to care for people are an admission that that's what those regulations do. We will never go back to the day where we're, we, we, can, we can just say, oh, licensing uh, increases the quality of care because now almost every state of the union has admitted, no, actually it reduces the quality of care by reducing access, okay? So, um, so we definitely need reforms there. Uh, on the question of um, what you might call demand side reforms or, or, or how we finance healthcare, I kind of, I think the lines kind of blur because those are also regular, those are often regulations that uh, uh, regulate the supply of health insurance, but that then does affect the demand. And so, uh, and so you, uh, you mentioned this, this uh, a proposal from the right to have, instead of Medicare for all, to have Medicare Advantage for all. Uh, I would dispute that this is a proposal from the right. Uh, this is the idea of having, and first we should maybe specify exactly what we mean by Medicare for all and Medicare Advantage for all. So traditional Medicare is the program that Lyndon Johnson signed into law in 1965, and it covers um, two-thirds of uh, the people in this country who are over age 65. 
Uh, it is a, a government health insurance program where the government writes the checks directly to doctors and to hospitals, directly to the care providers, okay? Medicare Advantage covers the other third of seniors. That is a program where the government, instead of writing checks to doctors and hospitals, the government writes checks to insurance companies, and then the insurance companies write the checks to the doctors and the hospitals. So, so I, I mentioned that because it's, it, it's not really clear that there's a huge difference, uh, that, that one of these is more conservative than the other, to have the government writing checks to one party, uh, one group of people versus writing checks to another group of people. Uh, I also think it's not a, a, a really a proposal from the right, um, uh, a conservative proposal, because um, uh, you know, the guest that you had on last time was from the Brookings Institution, which is a left of center organization. He used to work for the Heritage Foundation, uh, uh, where he was an advocate of an individual mandate and uh, came in to, to a lot of criticism from folks at the Cato Institute uh, in particular, that that was not a free market or even a conservative proposal. And this idea for uh, uh, Medicare Advantage for All is one that really no one else, no one on the conservative side has uh, really embraced. And the only people who, who have embraced it are groups like uh, the Center for American Progress, which is a left of center uh, think tank and advocacy group in Washington, D.C. Uh, and actually, you know, they, they pitched it to Kamala Harris, uh, uh, the Democratic vice presidential nominee. And she made that uh, really once once she backed away from full on Bernie Sanders style Medicare for all, she made that the centerpiece of her health care reform proposal, uh, Medicare Advantage for all, which is the idea that instead of expanding the Medicare traditional Medicare program to everyone, the one where government writes the checks to doctors. Uh, she wants to expand the Medicare Advantage program to everyone so that everyone's enrolled in a government health insurance program. But instead of writing checks to doctors, the, the program writes checks to insurance companies. I don't know how that's any less government run than the traditional Medicare program. Um, you still don't, uh, the government is still making the rules about, um, about who can participate. Uh, they, they, they can impose as many rules on uh, health insurance companies that take government money as they impose on the government itself. And so there's, I don't think there's anything less government run about uh, Medicare Advantage for All than uh, Medicare for All. And that's really troubling because if you look at uh, uh, certainly the cost of these programs, they're, they're exorbitant. Most of the uh, budgetary imbalance that the federal government's going to be uh, facing over the next few decades comes from healthcare programs like Medicare and Medicaid. But even more concerning than that is the quality of care in these programs is terrible. These programs are not, Medicare is not good insurance. Medicare is junk insurance. Medicare, uh, and, and it's, and you don't, don't take my word for it. Uh, the, the people who study the Medicare program and advise Congress on it, the people at the uh, Congressionally Chartered and Nonpartisan Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is just a bunch of economists that help Medicare set prices and decide uh, what to cover. Uh, they've been complaining for almost 20 years now, and it took 30 years for you know, the, the government to uh, get this far, but they've been complaining for 20 years that the quality of uh, care in Medicare is, is poor that Medicare rewards high, uh, low quality care and penalizes high quality care. And I'll give you an example. This is one that, the Med, that MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, raises. Uh, in, in many circumstances, 
because since Medicare pays one, what we call a fee for service basis. So you, the more stuff the doctor does, the more services they provide, the more fees they collect. Medicare writes a separate fee for each service. That creates an incentive for Medicare to do more uh, or for, for doctors to provide more services because they get paid more. So anything that a doctor does that reduces the number of services that, uh, that a patient would receive, like preventing avoidable medical errors, means that the doctor is out the investment of whatever system, a checklist or whatever the, the, the doctor or health system put in place in order to avoid medical errors. And then they're out the money that they would have received by making that patient whole again. You see, Medicare pays more when there's a medical error and pays less when, when doctors avoid them. And so that in effect is a penalty on the sorts of innovations that we would want to reduce medical errors. A market system would not operate like this. A market system would not penalize doctors and hospitals that improve the quality of care, yet Medicare does. Another example is hospital admissions. Medicare pays each hospital uh, a set fee per admission. So if a hospital improves the quality of care in a way that reduces preventable, you know, reduces unnecessary readmissions, Medicare doesn't pay that hospital more money. Medicare pays that hospital less money. And hospitals that have tried to reduce unnecessary admissions have found that they lost money and they can't sustain those programs because Medicare doesn't care about quality. This is not good insurance. This is junk insurance. When uh, To say that Medicare is quality health insurance is, is akin to saying, oh, well, it's too bad that grandpa died of a medical error, but at least Medicare paid for it. That is not good health insurance to me. I don't know why you would want to expand that and I also don't know why you would uh, or make that universal. And I, I don't think you'd want to do the same thing in Medicare Advantage either. Now, MedPAC has said that the private insurers that participate in Medicare, uh, in the Medicare Advantage program, are more innovative. They use more tools to try to improve the quality of care. And that's all to the good. We also probably end up paying more uh, because of administrative costs and games. Well, not so much administrative costs, but the games that the uh, in the Medicare Advantage participating private insurance companies play to maximize the size of the checks they get from the government. Uh, but uh, the quality of care appears to be better in the Medicare Advantage program. We've seen that over time that the quality tends to improve uh, more than in the Medicare program. But Medicare doesn't really know because the, because the folks at MedPAC say, you know what, Medicare cares so little about quality that it does we're not even measuring quality across the Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare programs in the way that we need to, to find out whether we're improving the quality of care. This would never happen in a market system. This, consumers would never put up with this. Uh, people like to say consumers can't handle you know, making their healthcare decisions because healthcare is so complex. Well, guess what? Neither can government because it doesn't even try. Um, and if we, instead of subsidizing doctors, instead of subsidizing hospitals, instead of subsidizing insurance companies. If the Medicare program just gave every senior a check, like Social Security does, and said, you spend this on the health insurance that you want, my God, we would see a revolution in health insurance and healthcare in this country. Seniors would be so exacting of the plans that they chose. They would not throw money at plans that uh, had reputations for poor quality. They would create incentives for plans to improve the quality of care and measure whether they're improving the quality of care. They would give their money to plans that save them money by avoiding unnecessary services. They would buy less insurance that Medicare uh, provides them because 
because by uh, choosing a more affordable plan, they would get to keep the premium savings and have more money to pay for their out-of-pocket uh, coverage. We would see prices falling dramatically, which is the most important thing we could do to bring healthcare within the reach of low-income people. That is a free market reform. It, well, and, that, and, and, and on that point, we talked a little bit before the podcast about uh, some litigation that you're following that deals specifically with expanding the the kinds of coverage that's available and, and deals specifically with short-term medical insurance. So um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and just kind of what who the players are and why this litigation is even happening? Yeah, this is a fascinating issue um, because uh, for a number of reasons, and it relates to, to Medicare. Uh, so uh, briefly, there is a category of insurance that Congress exempted from all federal health insurance regulation. It's called short-term limited duration insurance. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, uh, Congress doesn't define that, so the, or the executive branch gets to define exactly what the contours of that mean. But it is a legal market for health insurance that is exempt from uh, Obamacare regulations and all the other regulations uh, that the federal government imposes on health insurance. And as a result, the premiums are much lower. Uh, and they're so much lower that it's eating into the business and eating into the revenues of the private insurers who sell Obamacare plans. And they have gone into court to try to cripple their competitors. It's fascinating that they're, that they're doing this for a number of reasons. One is uh, we hear from advocates of uh, a public option, you know, the idea that you can have a, a, a government guarantee of access to healthcare in the form of a government-run insurance plan that competes with private insurance. So that even if the private insurers screw you, you will have a public option there that will never let you down. And you don't have to be afraid of it because it's always going to be on a level playing field. So you'll always have choice because all, all we want is competition, right? Well, here's an example of a government-chartered, government-run uh, uh, insurance system, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, competing with something that is not that is not subject to those regulations, and what what is what is happening? People are trying to cripple that competitor. They don't want the level playing field. They want the government to kneecap the competition to improve their revenues. And the insurance companies that are suing to achieve that outcome have said as much in court. That's not an exaggeration. They're saying we're losing money because of these people. We want the federal courts to cripple our competitors. It's also fascinating because this is an example of a private insurance company, try, private insurance companies trying to throw people with, uh, pre, with expensive medical conditions out of their coverage, trying to strip coverage from sick people. And instead of opposing that, Obamacare supporters are lauding it. How are they, how, how are they lauding it? Well, uh, the way that these insurance companies want to cripple their, co their competitors, these short-term plans is, right now you can sell a short-term plan that lasts up to 12 months, or you can, you can even renew for up to 36 months. The insurance company, the Obamacare plans are asking the courts to impose a rule on these short-term plans that say the short-term plans can only last three months. Now, insurance regulators at the state level have said, if you do that, some people are going to get sick in those first three months, and then you're going to take away their coverage. They're not going to be able to re-enroll in those plans because now they have a pre-existing condition, and they're not going to be able to enroll in an Obamacare plan either because Obamacare prohibits you from buying insurance generally for 10 months out of the year. So here you have an insurance company, that insurance regulator, or insurance companies, plural, that regulators 
have said are trying to throw sick people out of their coverage and leave them with no coverage for up to a year. And, uh, and where are all the people who are supposed to oppose this practice? Well, they're cheering these insurance companies on because they're Obamacare plans. And one last fascinating uh, part of this, um, uh, of this issue is that the insurance companies who are criticizing these short-term plans are calling them junk insurance. They're calling these plans junk insurance because, uh, because of what happened to Jean Balvin, an Arizona resident who in 2017, she was 61 years old, she bought a short-term plan. Uh, she developed diverticulitis. Uh, then her, uh, she was hospitalized, her plan expired. She was hospitalized two more times. The plan covered the, the first hospitalization but didn't cover the second two. Because her plan expired, they said, would you, try to, would you re-enroll? That was a pre-existing condition, so those say, those second and third hospitalizations are not covered. They say short-term plans are junk insurance because of what happened to Jean Belvin. But what they never mention is the reason her plan expired is because the rule that those insurance companies want to want right now was actually in place back then. And it was that rule, it was their preferred rule that, that cancels these plans after three months that threw Jean Belvin out of her plan. If that rule had not been in place, her insurance could have covered all three hospitalizations and not left her with $95,000 in unpaid medical bills. And so while they say junk health insurance, that short-term plans are junk health insurance, they've got it exactly backward. What's junk health insurance is basically all health insurance in the United States is junk health insurance because it's all, all, all government chartered or government run. Medicare is junk insurance because it encourages uh, medical errors. Medicaid is junk insurance because it, it, it's so hard to find a doctor who will see you because Medicare, Medicaid pays so little. Employer-sponsored health insurance is junk insurance because you can get sick and then lose your coverage when you lose your job, which is, in other words, for no good reason. Your coverage should not disappear when you lose your job, but the government penalizes you unless you buy that kind of plan. And Obamacare plans are junk insurance. Why are they junk insurance? Ask Colette Briggs, a seven-year-old leukemia patient in Virginia. Colette Briggs was diagnosed with leukemia when she was uh, three or four years old. And, uh, and, uh, Short, that was shortly after Obamacare threw them out of their pre-Obamacare individual market plan, which covered Colette's birth. Uh, and as soon, when they tried to get Colette care for her leukemia, what they found was the ACA plans kept excluding the hospitals that she needs. And the reason for this is that the ACA, not, not just the ACA, but its supposed protections for people with pre-existing conditions, reward hospitals, or reward health plans for excluding the hospitals, the drugs, the doctors that sick people need. That is junk insurance. So, uh, so, so that, that, that issue, that, that ongoing litigation about what we call short-term plans is very illuminating because it, it really casts into uh, full relief uh, a lot of the misconceptions, a lot of the deceptions that we hear about health insurance and access to care in the United States. We've written about short-term plans in the past, too. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that they're not junk insurance at all. They expand the supply of coverage to people who, who really need it and a, at a price that I think oftentimes is reasonable, much more uh, doable than a lot of these more fully featured Obamacare plans. It's often 70%. The, the premiums are often 70% less than Obamacare premiums. Yeah. I, I think as a general matter, the public likes the idea of making sure that more and more people can get access to care. I don't know if there's even that much of a debate about whether we want more people to be able to find care or find coverage. 
but I think the proposal that's often brought forward uh, that's either put on a ballot or, or debated, if it's not something that's supply side, that's reforming of licensure or, or, or what have you, it's something like Medicaid expansion. And obviously the state of Missouri voted on this uh, last week, it passed into law. There's probably gonna be some litigation, some fighting over it going forward. But I think when people think about Medicaid expansion, they oftentimes assume that it's expanding uh, the more or less the best kind of coverage that would otherwise be available to them, to people who otherwise wouldn't get get help. Now, I want to com combine that, you know, that provides context to the, the next question. And, and uh, you know, if you, if you want to talk a little bit about the quality in for that expanded population, quality of care for the expanded population, I, I'd, I'd appreciate that too. But we're going to have Chris Pope from the Manhattan Institute on to talk a little bit about one of his ideas, which is to basically take the mandatory populations of Medicaid and have it basically completely run by the federal government. Um, he talks about this in in an article uh, that published a couple months ago, and he's going to have a paper come out, I think, in the next couple of weeks that goes into it at, at some greater depth. But but what he observes, and, and I, I, I tend to agree with this, is that when we talk about reforming Medicaid, usually it's in the context of states receiving some substantive waiver, having flexibility, being able to reduce costs, uh, and a lot of times that just simply doesn't happen. And not only that, you know, you, you start getting into what happens to Medicaid during an economic downturn. And Medicaid gets the largest and most expensive when states have the least amount of money. And so um, if there are going to be spending requirements imposed by the federal government, the federal government in, in his uh, uh, from his perspective should probably be carrying the full cost of that and managing it directly because there isn't substantive flexibility there. So Missouri has now expanded Medicaid, um, and now we're talking about you know, how should the Medicaid program really be structured. Chris Pope says it should probably mostly, at least for mandatory populations, be managed directly, more like Medicare than Medicaid uh, as we see it today, which is a shared program between the state and federal government. What do you think is the future of Medicaid? Is that something... Uh, that should remain at the state level, or is it something that you think that the federal government, if they're going to impose these requirements and, and not provide flexibility, something that the federal government should just undertake by itself? Okay, that is a really big question. Yeah. Uh, with a lot of dimensions to it. Let me see if I can address just a couple of them <laughs> briefly. Uh, the Medicaid program is actually a joint federal state program uh, that provides health care uh, ostensibly just to the poor, but there's a lot of non-poor poor people who take advantage of Medicaid. And uh, uh, the lion's share of the funding comes from the federal government, but a lot of it comes from the states too. And in a really uh, sort of harmful way where the federal government ma matches each dollar that the state spends. Uh, uh, in some states, uh, it'll just match a dollar for dollar. In other states, uh, if a state spends a dollar, they can get three, four, five dollars from the federal government, and in some cases as many as nine dollars uh, from the federal government for every dollar that they spend. And so uh, the, uh, you first mentioned the Medicaid expansion. Uh, that's a, I think that's just about the worst thing you can do uh, for uh, when it comes to Medicaid and for the people whom Medicaid purports to help is to expand the Medicaid program. Now, why do I say that? A lot of people will say the Medicaid pays so little it's hard to find access to care. Well, that's true, um, but that's not even the worst part. Uh, a lot of people will say that the Medicaid expansion, because it covers able-bodied adults 
uh, is unfair because they should be buying health insurance on their own. Okay, there's a good argument there. Um, others go on to say that because the federal government pays 90% of the cost for those people, and on average about you know, less than 60% of the cost for all the other people, the aged, blind, disabled, pregnant women, uh, and children, the way the funding works, there's a weird incentive if you expand the Medicaid program to cut care for the more needy populations, the aged, blind, disabled, pregnant women and children, in order to provide uh, care uh, for the uh, able-bodied adults. That's another good reason not to expand Medicaid. To my mind, the biggest reason not to expand Medicaid is this. Most of the funding is gonna come from the federal government. And that's whether you do the Obamacare Medicaid expansion or just expand the Medicaid program um, uh, for the old uh, populations uh, uh, in, in whatever ways. The more you expand the Medicaid program, the more the federal government's going to spend and it's all gonna be deficit spending. Okay, there's no pot of money that's, this is, this is Missouri's Medicaid money and we're just waiting for Missouri to claim it. No, if a state doesn't expand Medicaid, the, the federal government run, is running deficits. Um, the national debt is all, almost 100% of US GDP right now, which is a really bad place to be. Uh, and if a state doesn't expand Medicaid, the federal government spends no money on that. If it if it say does expand Medicaid, then the federal government has to come up with its contribution to that uh, to that new spending. And the way it does that is by borrowing, by increasing the national deficit, by increasing the national debt. The federal government can't do that forever. Eventually, it's going to run into uh, uh, a wall. Where we're going to either Congress is going to um, find religion and impose fiscal discipline on itself, which is not likely. Or we're going to face something like a Greek-style debt crisis, where people aren't willing to lend the U.S. government money anymore. Either way, uh, if something cannot go on forever like this, eventually it will stop. And when it stops, and this is the worst, uh, I mean, the, the most dangerous part of the Medicaid expansion, when it stops, if we've enrolled tens of millions more people in the Medicaid program, their necks are going to be first on the chopping block when it comes time to make cuts. We've seen this at the state level even though there's a huge disincentive uh, for states to cut Medicaid spending, when the budget crunch happens, Medicaid is the first place they go. They cut provider payments. They cut back on, uh, on what we call non-mandatory um, uh, benefits, uh, optional benefits. Uh, they've even been known to roll back eligibility for certain groups. If we hit a Greek-style debt crisis, uh, you by expanding Medicaid, you're making that more likely to happen and you, you're putting Medicaid enrollees in a much more vulnerable po uh, position where the government could totally take away uh, their, um, their, their access to care. And for what? To prop up a system that, that's, that's fueling the high cost and low quality that we see throughout the US healthcare sector. So it's a, it's a bad move all the way around. Um, Chris Pope uh, is, a, is, is, a, is a brilliant guy and I, we agree on a lot of things. I'm not a huge fan of moving uh, Medicaid uh, all to the federal level so that there's no more state funding. Uh, on the one hand, I like that idea because lines of accountability would be much clearer. On the other hand, I worry that that uh, would just accelerate the process that I described before, where you know at least states have to have to come up with the money for their portion. But if the federal government is in control of all of the Medicaid spending, then it doesn't have to do that. It can just borrow the parts that the states had been spending, accelerate that uh, that um, that uh, crisis scenario that I that I mentioned. 
so as much as I hate the idea of intergovernmental transfers that diffuse responsibility for the things that government does, uh, I'm very leery of that, I, I, of that approach. I much prefer the one that says, all right, the federal government is going to take the money that has been giving to, state, given to, giving to states. It is going to, oh, you'd also have huge political resistance at the state level mm -hmm. to uh, Chris Pope's proposal because all the people uh, at, in the Medicaid agencies at the, at the state level and all the, all the state level interest groups that can influence Medicaid policy at the state level will freak out because they'll lose control over that program to Washington. I think a much more politically feasible and substantively better proposal would be if the federal government caps the amount that it uh, provides to states, say we're not gonna provide any more money to states this year, the next year that we do this year and on for, you know, for steel to the future, takes that money, gives it to states in the form of cash that states can basically spend however they want. That would correct so many of the perverse incentives that the current Medicaid system creates. States would manage that money much more wisely because they, they, they wouldn't have an incentive to enroll more and more people or to turn a blind eye to, to waste and fraud the way they do right now. We would get much more effective programs that are targeted at the poor, that aren't letting middle-class people take advantage of the taxpayers. And, um, and, and we could put the federal government on a glide path to uh, no longer contributing to these programs at all, have them be entirely state-run. Uh, I much prefer that system of what we call block grants to a system of waivers. And here's why. A waiver is just sort of Washington speak for the government has taken away your freedom to live your life or the, your state's ability to decide how to run its program. And then we're going to give it back to you piece by piece if you beg us and ask us politely. Uh, I would prefer that the federal government not take our freedom or not take the state's prerogative to run its healthcare programs the way it wants in the first place. And so, uh, so I'm not a fan of waivers. I'm a, uh, I, 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 I favor uh, the block grant approach where the federal government weans the states off of federal dollars and gives them maximum flexibility along the way. Michael, I know we've taken a lot of your time, so I got one more question for you. Now, Show Me Institute, obviously a state-based think tank, usually what we're working on are state-based solutions. So if you were to, to talk to just the average uh, policymaker in your average state and, and that policymaker asked you, what can we do at the state level? What would be the, 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 the best thing that we could do right now uh, to make care more accessible and more affordable uh, in our state. What would you tell that, that policymaker and why? Unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. It's a multifaceted problem. And, and I, could, I could pick from a handful of different reforms and which one is best. It's hard to know because it would be a judgment call. If what you want to do is expand access to health insurance, tell a state to remove all restrictions on, well, on the short-term market, short-term health insurance market. A lot of states ban these products. New York, New Jersey, you can't buy, now California, I believe, has banned them as well. They, they, they banned them recently, right after uh, the rule was changed, I believe. Yes, because they did not want people to have access to affordable health insurance. Um, they did not want people to be able to make their own health insurance choices. Uh, I would remove all of those restrictions because a lot of people will see their premiums plummet. Health insurance will come in within the reach of people who can't afford Obamacare coverage. I mean, Joe Biden is proposing to open Medicare to people age 60 and up. That's an admission that Obamacare is not meeting those people's needs because it's still too expensive, okay? Um, but that might not be the most dire need that a state faces. It might be 
the most dire need that a state faces might just be access to basic care for low-income populations. And to solve that problem, what I would do is I would tell, I would uh, advise a state to say uh, that to, to expand on the reforms that states have put in place since the coronavirus pandemic and say, uh, we will recognize on a permanent basis the license of any clinician licensed by any state in the union or territory in the union to come and practice in this, in this state under the terms of that license. When it comes to malpractice, you're still going to have to deal with this state's malpractice system. And that's the quality guarantee that government should put in place and that actually works better than licensing. But otherwise, do basically what Arizona has tried to do. Uh, so there's, sort of, there's a, a model there, uh, which is say that, that we're not going to use our clinician licensing laws as a barrier to entry uh, into our markets or a barrier to trade. We're going to let people provide telemedicine from other states. We're going to let nurse practitioners who uh, have prescribing authority and, uh, and can practice independently to come and do that in our state because we want to get the price of healthcare down, down, down as far as we can without sacrificing uh, uh, quality in order to expand access to uh, our most vulnerable patients. That helps not just the, the low income folks, that also helps you know, folks of moderate and high incomes who have high disease burdens because you're lowering prices for everybody when you do that. Uh, that might actually be more important than the health insurance piece. Michael, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.